If we want to know what direction housing's headed this year, we need to know what's going to happen to the economy. That's why I'm kicking off the 2024 season of the Arch Mortgage Insurance Policy Cast with two preeminent housing economists, Parker Ross of the Arch Capital Group and Christian Doritas of Moody's. Where are interest rates headed? What impact will climate change have on housing? And what can we expect presidential candidates to be telling voters about the state of the economy? Parker and Chris have all the answers. Well, I'm delighted to host two of the nation's foremost housing economists, Parker Ross of uh, Arch Capital Group and Christian Doritas of Moody's to the Arch Mortgage Insurance Policy Cast for our first podcast of 2024. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Hey, listen, I have a lot of questions, so let's dive right in. Uh, just recently, we heard the U.S. economy grew 3.3% in the fourth quarter, uh, and that lifted the economic growth for the entire year to 2.5%. Are either of you surprised? Uh, did, did you forecast such robust growth? Parker, why don't we start with, uh, with you for that first question? Sure. Uh, I, I was surprised it was as strong as it was. We, we weren't forecasting uh, that robust of growth, but we were expecting, you know, pretty, pretty decent growth in, in 2023, which, you know, was was quite the outlier view. You go back uh, a year plus and there weren't weren't many. I think there was almost 90 percent of economists were calling for a recession last year. So so certainly caught everybody uh, off guard. There's you know a lot of a lot of reasons for that. But, uh, you know, certainly the fiscal policy was one of the big things. Uh, and and the excess savings that was still you know sitting in consumer accounts after the pandemic, there are uh, a few factors that that likely lifted growth more than uh, more than expected. But uh, certainly, I, I don't know, Chris, where you guys were uh, to start to start the year, but definitely definitely an upside surprise to what we were expecting, even if it was modest growth. Yeah, I guess we were uh, pretty close to your camp. We were also calling for a growth year in 2023. We're not we did not have a recession uh, penciled in, unlike uh, most. Uh, but I have to say, uh, even with that somewhat optimistic view, it, it was a surprise to the upside, right? And clearly, even the fourth quarter, right? This last number uh, that uh, that Kirky referenced was was clearly stronger than um, consensus, even stronger than our uh, estimate uh, for that fourth quarter performance. I would highlight the consumer and just the, the resiliency of uh, U.S. consumers throughout this entire period has just been remarkable, right? You point to the excess savings as part of that, but think of all the shocks, potential shocks that we're, we've thrown at uh, this economy. It's between the debt ceiling, Russia-Ukraine invasion, oil prices going up. Consumers have been rock solid in terms of continuing to, to spend and support the broader economy. So that's certainly a, a positive uh, upside risk that we saw. So, Chris, the, the next one, I'll, I'll let you answer. Have we escaped a recession? What What are the key indicators you guys are looking for? Well, uh, you know, we're debating whether or not we call uh, whether or not we declare victory. Uh, at what point do you declare victory? I think we still have to wait uh, until until inflation is firmly back in the bottle, right? We we had a um, uh, personal consumption expenditure inflation report out today as well that was uh, quite positive. Shows that things are continuing to move back in. Uh, we do expect to see inflation come down to the 2% uh, Fed target later this year, but I, th I think we want to see that before we really um, declare victory. We want to see the Fed actually starting its rate cuts 
right? Uh, before we we declare, hey, we are firmly out of this uh, out of this cycle. So there's still some downside risks out there. I think it's important to highlight those. Um, but uh, it's getting close, getting close to declaring victory. Parker, yeah, no, we're we're still calling for you know a bit of a slowdown this year. I think the big the big thing to, to Chris's point is the inflation story. We also expect inflation to come in, but you know the Fed. There's right now market pricing is I think around 50-50 of a March rate cut, but we're we're sitting at kind of the May camp for the first cut. Uh, I think they want to see more data in hand. I think their bigger concern at this point is uh, calling declaring victory too soon rather than uh, a recession triggering a recession. Uh, certainly, there's a long and variable lags of, lags of monetary policy that uh, is always a concern. Haven't seen those yet. Uh, certainly, in some sectors more than others, but uh, but yeah, I think. That that's the big the big risk is that if growth continues like this, the Fed's going to be much more reluctant uh, to to start the cutting cycle. And then if those uh, long and variable lags rear their head at the wrong time, you know the second half of this year could be uh, a little exciting. So so certainly you know expecting the Fed to get uh, rate cuts underway, you know mid year basically, uh, probably every other meeting, uh, keep the cutting going twenty five basis points, uh, get things back to normal. They're not cutting because of a recession concerns, as I was mentioning. They're cutting to get back to normal. Five and a half percent is obviously not normal for for Fed rates, so uh, so they'll probably try to get it back to the you know the mid to upper two percent range. Uh, seems so like. so actually, you 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 jumped ahead of me because I was going to put you guys on the spot and 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 ask uh, when do you think the Fed will, will start cutting interest rates? I was at a meeting just recently, and a, a number of folks were saying you know the economy is going so well right now, the Fed doesn't need to cut interest rates. And, and Chris, what what do you think? Yeah, so in our uh, Moody's Analytics baseline, we we have uh, May as the first uh, uh, the first meeting where they start to cut. Um, but uh, but you're right. Given the the strength of the economy, it seems like you know the businesses, consumers are kind of shaking off these uh, interest rate hikes at least so far. So my bias would probably be that they may wait longer uh, at this point. Obviously, there's a lot of data between now and and even March uh, to be seen, but uh, yeah, I don't. I I think uh, March may be off the table uh, at this point, barring some other, you know, extremely uh, uh, impressive uh, inflation report or some other activity. But uh, find uh, I think mid-year. On here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think the uh, you know the outlook from here certainly uh, the consensus view I think for growth is still fairly weak for twenty twenty four. I think. Consensus is expecting growth, GDP growth to slow to about half percent uh, over the next couple of quarters. Maybe, maybe they'll get revised up in the next uh, consensus survey that comes out. But uh, yeah, the consensus continues to seem relatively, uh, relatively pessimistic about about the outlook, and yet also calling for those rate cuts maybe because of that pessimistic outlook as opposed to uh, the normalization. But um, but anyways, yeah, I'll turn it back to Kirk, see if, what, what other topics you have for us. Well, so, so I, I, I was wondering, it, it, it just kind of spur of the moment, but, but um, given that, that the fact that, you know, hey, the, these rate increases were, were painful while they, they, they took place, but if you were to give a grade to the Fed for managing uh, the situation, uh, Parker, what kind of a grade would you give them on, a, on an A to F scale? I'd give them a solid B. I mean, I think the... I think they kept uh, quantitative easing going a bit longer than they needed. I mean, you know, obviously the, the housing market was doing just fine without buying a bunch of mortgage-backed securities. So I, I think there was not really a need to keep it going. 
uh, and they were a little bit late to, to the party on that. And obviously can't give them a great A on the, the transitory inflation uh, that they were declaring back then. Uh, so, you know, they caught up in a hurry uh, and they got they got to a restrictive stance and didn't overdo it apparently last year. So uh, at this point, you know, I don't, I don't know how much credit we give the Fed to the inflation normalizing, but uh, at this point they they haven't put us into recession. So give them some credit for that. And, uh, and there's probably, you know, there's probably some credit due to them for uh, for what we've been through. So I'll give them a B. Chris? I guess I'm a little bit more generous greater. I, I give them at least an A minus. Um, you know, certainly there are parts of the of the response that uh, could have gone better. I, they were certainly late to the game in terms of starting the the uh, hiking cycle, and and clearly in terms of the um, stopping the MBS purchase, mortgage-backed security purchases. Uh, okay, there we agree. That's probably <laughs> a solid D. Um, but overall, if you think about the extent of this uh, period, the, the stress that was involved, the, the multiple uh, shocks we've been through, I think they've navigated very, very admirably. Um, I guess we'll wait to see uh, until uh, what, what happens here over the, the rest of the year, if inflation does indeed get back to uh, the 2% target without uh, a recession in the meantime, um, before we give the final grade. But uh, at least in terms of this uh, midterm update, uh, I think they're They've done admirably well given the circumstances. Yeah, I was just gonna say the other interesting thing is the the little banking squall that we had last year, where you know that, that could have turned into something yeah. a lot more than just a banking squall, and they certainly reacted well to that. And uh, I mean, we're we're well into almost a year since that uh, that started. So uh, the the BTFP uh, program is is about to come to an end, uh, but it seems like that was the the proper response and navigated well through that. So certainly give them high marks on that regard. Good point. Let's turn to housing. Uh, it's a little specific. The, the Mortgage Bankers Association just reported that uh, mid-January mortgage applications were up 3.7% over the previous week. Uh, and this is despite uh, mortgage rates that were edging up over the same period. What explains that? I think where we are right now with mortgage rates relative to where we have been. I mean, there's uh, I think there were a lot of people that were certainly turned off by the 8% rates that they were getting, getting quoted late last year. Uh, and, and so there's a little bit of momentum from that, just, you know, the people that have been on the sidelines for uh, a lot of late last uh, last year coming back into the game, uh, seeing a, a six handle on their, their mortgage sounds a lot better than a, a seven handle. So although it's obviously not back to anywhere it was a couple of years ago, that's that's still enough to generate some some interest and some activity. Uh, you know, there's not not a lot of refi activity at this this point. There's a little bit coming back for some people that. Uh, I think a lot of it's cash out uh, refis, though, at this point, as opposed to people trying to improve their rates. Um, but, but yeah, I think that'll continue even if we don't see a big improvement in rates going forward. I still expect uh, mortgage purchase application activity to to gradually trend higher this year. You know, I don't think we have to get back to a five handle or something to get, you know, I think that'd be a, quite a bit of activity if we got back to a five handle. So uh, I think just, you know, the relative comparison, I think consumers are are looking at this like a, an opportunity to get back in the market. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I'd, I'd be a little cautious to read too much into a week-to-week -week number. There's can be some volatility in that uh, MBA or any really weekly number, uh, uh, to say the least. Um, I think we also have a, a very strong psychological component in the housing market uh, today, right? Given the very low levels of inventory and the strong levels of demand that are out there, I think people are 
you know, feeling uh, the the pressure to to move if they do find a property that that they can afford that they like, and they're even willing to pay a little extra or you know take out that uh, higher interest rate mortgage just to get in the door, perhaps with an anticipation that rates will be coming down, they'll have a chance to refinance uh, to a lower rate in in the future. But I, I think that scarcity of the um, available uh, inventory just creates a lot of uh, anxiety. That lizard mind kind of kicks in uh, for for folks, and you might see people reacting in a way that you might not think is particularly logical, given the the movements in the rates themselves. So, so where do you think mortgage rates are going to go in the next six to twelve months? So I, I do expect that they will uh, drift down, perhaps getting closer to the a six percent. Uh, level, perhaps maybe more in, in, in 2025. Uh, the spread uh, between the 30-year fixed rate mortgage and the 10-year remains quite elevated, but it has started to come in. I do expect that to to continue to uh, come in further as we get a little bit more investor activity, especially if the economy is improving. We remove some of the uncertainty or the volatility uh, in those interest rate markets. That should help to get that uh, interest rate back down to something just under 6% would be my long-run equilibrium. And that's based on an assumption that the 10-year treasury will uh, hover around 4%, consistent with nominal uh, GDP growth. And then that uh, that spread comes into something closer to uh, 200 basis points versus 300. Historically, it's been closer to 160, 170. So I'm still allowing for the fact that maybe there won't be quite that uh, spread tightening all the way back, given that the Fed is no longer in the market, purchasing MBS, there's a bit of a hole when it comes to um, investor demand. Um, but nonetheless, I would expect to see us kind of dip down to that maybe five and three quarter, let's say, um, would be a long run equilibrium. And, and Parker, do you agree? Uh, yeah, roughly. I think we're a little bit lower on the long run equilibrium, but uh, you know, over the near term, you know, as I was alluding to before, probably in the the low six percent range seems reasonable with the the timing of the Fed rate cuts and assuming the economy continues to hang in there. Uh, you know, getting around low, low 6% makes sense. But the long run, you know, I look at about similar to the the concept of the nominal GDP, you know, being roughly equal to the 10 year. But I, I think of it more in terms of where that the Fed is at in the neutral rate in the long run. If they're getting back to two and a half percent, you know, 150 basis point yield curve between the Fed funds in 10 years is actually pretty, pretty significant compared to what it has been over the past, you know, many decades. So uh, especially in periods of, you know, relatively you know, equilibrium periods, not that we've had many <laughs> for a much long period of time, but you take that 250 and you layer layer on maybe 75 basis points to 100 basis points of uh, a yield curve slope there, then you're, you're getting into the, you know, three and a half, maybe three and a quarter range for uh, the 10 years. So layer on, I, I agree, probably 200 basis points makes sense for the mortgage spread. I uh, don't think we'll get there this year. I think that'll be a 2020, uh, 2025 story for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. Uh, so, so yeah, getting into the fives maybe uh, next year, and you know, stabilizing around maybe that five and a half percent range. So, so if there's a long-term trend going down, uh, would you suggest that uh, consumers might want to consider an adjustable rate mortgage now versus a a fixed? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think there's much of a pickup right now in terms of taking an adjustable rate versus a fixed rate. I think it was a different story uh, previously. So, I mean, you still have to qualify. Uh, you know, at the the adjusted rate, and uh, you know, there's more strict guidelines around qualifying. So, uh, I, and, and typically, you're going to be fixed for probably five to ten years. So, uh, I, I personally have an adjustable rate, and I, I do recommend them. But uh, it's always you got to do the math 
uh, for each individual uh, to figure out the scenario. But but yeah, right now, uh, if there's not much pickup to doing the adjustable rate, I just go fixed and yeah, probably refinance in a year or two whenever rates are a bit lower. Uh, which I think that's part of why mortgage spread will stay a little bit more elevated too, because that's what mortgage bankers are expecting as well, that prepayment rates are going to be higher in the future than they are today. Uh, and so they're making that into that mortgage spread. Yeah, uh, I, I agree on all points there. So We've seen a lot of news since the, uh, the, the start of the pandemic about um, certain cities becoming overvalued as people rushed out of higher cost regions that, you know, Phoenix, Boise, Austin are, are three that come to mind. Do you guys think that the post-pandemic migration is, is slowing? I do. We actually have uh, some data out, I think, just uh, yesterday or today. Um, uh, we have data that we collect through uh, partnership with Equifax. So we're looking at credit reports uh, to measure or examine how uh, migratory patterns are are shaping. It's a, we find that this data is a little bit more uh, forward-looking or certainly gets updated much more quickly than the post office uh, data or, or IRS data that, that might be available. Uh, and it is showing uh, some evidence of uh, slowing migratory patterns overall. I, I don't think that's a surprise. Even you could just look at existing home sales and see that they're way down. So clearly people are not uh, moving, uh, buying and selling at the rate that they were previously. Um, but at the same time, it also suggests that perhaps that uh, urban flight uh, that had been going on, maybe slowing down as well. That uh, we're starting, we're certainly seeing younger uh, folks preferring perhaps to to move in more urban areas, perhaps given the cost of uh, of housing elsewhere. Um, and even for other uh, age groups, also seeing some some of that slowdown in the uh, in the uh, exodus uh, from those areas. But by and large, some of the broader patterns, moving south, moving west, the, those are still in place, just not quite at the rate that we saw during the the height of the pandemic. Yeah, I'll defer to, to Chris on that. He's got much better data than, than I have available at my fingertips on the migration data. Um, but one, one thing I think is interesting is obviously everyone knows Austin was the hot spot. Then obviously it's not the hot spot anymore. Uh, but the interesting thing is it's still leading growth, right? So it, it's it's slowed and, and the, the housing market got a bit over its skis, but it's not like the growth just turned off. It's still one of the fastest growing markets out there. There's still uh, but there's also a lot of construction uh, in the market. So, so that, that's the interesting thing looking across, uh, you know, at uh, Nashville, Austin, Phoenix, Boise. Uh, they, they were some of the highest growth markets, remain some of the highest growth markets, uh, but also have a lot of supply coming online. Uh, affordability and valuations, a, a, a different story. And so it's actually interesting even across those. You don't have the same uh, price activity. It's not like they're all down. Uh, similar amounts. You look at Phoenix, it's actually started to kind of stabilize a little bit earlier than Austin has. Austin's still going through some lumps there and, uh, you know, Boise's in a little bit better shape. So it, it's it's interesting looking at the the different dynamics across markets that, you know, although you think of those mentally as kind of the same types of markets, they're having very different outcomes uh, based on some of that construction activity with the relative supply of, you know, new, sub, new construction is versus demand and uh, they're all hot, but there's different levels of hot and <laughs> different levels of growth. So, so, so Parker, I know you're you're constantly looking at uh, geographies from a from a risk standpoint as a, as a and uh, an insurance uh, economist. So let's turn the tables a little bit. What are some cities or regions that you think are undervalued, and and why do you view them as maybe promising markets? I don't know if there's a ton of undervalued markets left. Uh, there's. There's certainly some opportunities in areas that are less overvalued, maybe, uh, but but certainly 
uh, you know, the, the amount of home price growth that we've seen uh, across all markets was was extremely robust over the past few years uh, and certainly far outpaced income growth. So uh, just about across the board, we see uh, most markets as either close to fairly valued or overvalued. But, um, you know, some of the Northeast is interesting. Uh, you, you talk about Connecticut, uh, my, my home state. Uh, I, I don't know that I would call it undervalued, but certainly it's on the more affordable spectrum relative to incomes. Uh, and you kind of continue to see that it's extremely tight. Uh, not a lot of homes available for sale. Uh, prices continue to rise because of that. Uh, there's you know large large labor markets nearby that have high incomes that can support those prices. Uh, and and so also up in Boston, Boston's been uh, one of those markets that le less overvalued than others and has uh, you know relatively tight markets. Uh, Philadelphia is an interesting one that. Uh, well, I guess Chris probably can speak to that more than I can. I, I don't know Philadelphia the way he does, but uh, it's an interesting one that uh, you know has has been a bit more uh, robust than you pr probably would have expected otherwise, but remains relatively affordable um, and, and has obviously good labor market uh, opportunities nearby. Um, but yeah, most of the you know the the west half of the U.S. is certainly on the more overvalued side. Uh, we see a lot of those as more stretched and. Uh, Florida is getting there uh, as well, but but yeah, some of the Midwest, uh, Cleveland, some of the Ohio markets, uh, the Northeast, or some of the areas that are on the more affordable and less overvalued end of the spectrum that that still have probably a bit more opportunity to get in without uh, as much downside risk on home prices. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Midwest, Northeast, Eastern uh, parts of the country again, perhaps reflecting some of those migratory patterns. Uh, one market that. You know, if, if we just do a, a clean screen, if you will, on uh, on affordability or overvaluation, looking at uh, gro trend growth versus, uh, let's say, fundamental uh, growth, San Francisco rises to your top, the top of the list because prices have come in. So relative to their history, they actually look quite uh, reasonable, uh, actually undervalued. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have to, of course, overlay expectations uh, for future economic growth and understand what's uh, what what the demand uh, pattern might look like there and have they had a, a structural shift perhaps uh in terms of that uh, relative valuation so we use overvaluation kind of as, as a first cut to rank order some of these metros but I, I think you want to be a little careful not to just take the the data right at uh, face value because there could be some of these cross currents there yeah the unless San Francisco rises again I, I certainly hope they do but um it's an interesting case study too because you have uh you know San Francisco and Connecticut had similar effects in terms of the out migrate net out migration generally uh but you know maybe a little bit more extreme in San Francisco than in Connecticut there's uh and there's there's kind of a steady stream of people out out of Connecticut in the northeast to to more affordable markets but there's also a steady stream of you know people moving out of the cities into the the suburbs so it's an interesting mix but uh but yeah different very different price behavior and uh, like Connecticut and Boston than what you have uh, in San Francisco. Yeah. Absolutely. If there's one constant barrier we're always hearing about when it comes to housing affordability, it's the lack of supply of homes. So, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's 3 million short, it's 6 million short. Which regions face the worst shortages and, and what steps do you see local and state governments taking to address the problem or what steps should they be taking to address the problems? Uh, I, I can start on that. The, uh, I mean, in general, I think the, the the easiest way to look at places that are most undersupplied are the places that have the highest uh, price to income ratios. I mean, if there's a, 
uh, almost by definition, if, if the price to income ratio is extremely high, then that means that it's a, a market where for whatever reason, either land supply or regulation that uh, that, that you don't uh, have enough supply to, to keep things relatively steady. So, um, you know, in some of the high cost markets like New York and San Francisco that, you know, have land uh, availability issues as well as regulatory issues in terms of getting construction underway, uh, you see extremely high price to income ratios and they trend higher over time as well because there's just not the supply uh, coming online. So, so certainly building more housing uh, is an interesting way to address that. And Los Angeles is a place that's uh, taken an interesting approach to relaxing some of those regulations to getting uh, ADUs, as we call them, accessory dwelling units, uh, basically legalized so that people can place you know, small living quarters in their backyards or on their properties uh, that they couldn't otherwise and you know, provides additional supply to the market that uh, should allow more balance there. But uh, yeah, I'll defer to Chris and if he has any any thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. So clearly, zoning is the is the key here. Um, the zoning restrictions that uh, prevent you know density um, clearly have a have an impact in terms of keeping house prices elevated and rising. Uh, it's a real challenge given the NIMBYism, the not in my backyard uh, movement, right? Everybody agrees in theory. Oh, we need more houses, right? There is a deficit, however you measure it, and all the numbers are are large, whether it's 2 million, 3 or 6 uh, million out there. Um, and we all agree that, yes, we need more supply. We Zoning is likely the, uh, the major uh, regulatory hurdle, but then it's very difficult to, uh, to move on that uh, at a local level. So it, I'd say for the uh, local governments, a challenge, but one they have to um, continuously educate uh, folks on, you know, increasing density, increasing the supply of housing, is a benefit in the end. It's a it makes your community more attractive for businesses, makes your community uh, one, a destination um, for families and other households uh, uh, forming there. So obviously, we need to be smart about the uh, the growth and the uh, the reform. Uh, but that's I don't I don't see any other way around it. I don't see another solution without uh, addressing that uh, that zoning problem. Even that though, I will. Uh, submit is not a, it's not going to be an overnight solution right so we do have areas across the country that have changed their zoning right have liberalized but it's uh doesn't mean that uh the next day you have uh, suddenly builders <laughs> coming in to put up uh, additional units so it, it's going to take time uh but if we don't take that first step it'll never happen so there, there's a new challenge that that seems to be emerging when it comes to affordability climate change uh, and, and wondering just, you know, in your view, how will climate change alter the national regional housing markets in the coming decades? Which areas do you think face the greatest risk of natural disasters? And how might higher homeowner insurance premiums begin to impact housing prices? Yeah, I, I think you need to hit the nail on the on the head there with the last uh, statement. I think there's this, there has been this idea of climate change being this, uh, threat that is off in the distance, you know, multiple decades away. And that, that may be true in terms of the most um, uh, deleterious impacts of, of climate change and how uh, how severe storms or frequent storms uh, may occur. But we're already facing the impacts today from a housing perspective. Right? Homeowners insurance, both availability and cost, is already having a very significant impact on certain markets, and I expect that's going to continue to to spread and grow. Right, we we continue to hear about insurers exiting entire states like California and Florida, 
given the uh, regulatory environment, the fact that they can't, uh, in their view, charge a, uh, a premium that is sufficient to cover the risks. And therefore, you're going to continue to see that having a, a very negative effect on the ability of households to pay, right, to actually uh, insure their homes if, if they can find the insurance, and then potentially ripple effects on the mortgage market if if insurance just is no longer available in certain areas, right, that's going to certainly have a, 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 a an immediate impact in terms of cutting off uh, the supply of mortgage credit. So, I think it, I think the most important takeaway is it's already happening today, right? It's not something that's far off in the future, and we're going to continue to see the the impacts of higher costs impacting certainly states in the South, uh, Florida, with a lot of um, hurricane exposure. Um, areas with certainly wildfire exposures as well as we think about California. Uh, but then uh, increasingly, you could see uh, additional storm activity in the, the middle part of the country, right? The areas that are certainly subject to hail and wind storms, those be be could become more intense as well, droughts in certain areas. So I don't think we can just focus on a, a couple of areas that can identify today. We have to think a little bit more uh, strategically or globally in terms of the the impacts here. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. I mean, you, you can I think Redfin added a, a nice tool on their their search feature. You can actually see the climate risks, uh, you know, to the different markets that you're looking at. Uh, but I think they also found that people consumers are continuing to flock to those markets that have some yes. of the high climate risks. Uh, and and so that's what to your point. I think a lot of people view it as something you know far into the future doesn't impact them. Uh, but maybe if they're new to the area, they find out how it does impact them. And then also the home ownership. Uh, sorry, the homeowner's insurance is is something that has that in your face impact of of wow, my homeowner's insurance just doubled. Uh, may, maybe makes think, people think twice uh, once they're there. So uh, that's the interesting thing as we went through this this pandemic that shook up where everybody lives and had all this increase in migration and people going to new areas. But uh, yeah, property taxes are starting to go up. Uh, you know, based on all of the price gains that have that have happened over the past couple of years and. Uh, those bills are going to be coming due and people are seeing uh, valuations adjust higher. Uh, but yeah, certainly on the climate front, the, the homeowner's insurance is the most immediate impact I think that homeowners feel aside from the actual damage from uh, the climate events that are happening. So, Yeah, I, I suspect that the um, you know the low interest rate environment we had kind of papered over some of mm -hmm. those uh, issues. Okay, I, I see that there's a higher insurance I'm going to have to pay for as a, as, a, as a consumer, as a buyer, but I've got this great rate so I can, you know, make that trade off. Now that things have changed, and even though we expect interest rates to to fall, they're not falling all the way back to three, four percent. I think now we're going to start to see more of that um, effect of a higher premium or higher property taxes taking a bite out of uh, house price growth. At least the trajectory, maybe not going negative, but uh, I would expect that some of these areas are going to see a a sharp slowdown. So it's natural in our line of work, we talk a lot about home ownership, but that the high cost of buying houses means that an increasing number of Americans are renting. Uh, and, and Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies just issued a report saying that uh, housing is unaffordable for half of America's renters. About 22 million Americans are paying more than 30% of their income for rent and utilities. And, and fully half of those, about 11 million, are paying more than 50% for their, their rent and utilities. How do you think we ought to address this problem? I think the answer is the same. It's supply, right? Uh, 
more more units uh, that will help uh, rent growth to uh, to flatten, if, if not fall, in certain markets. I think I think we're already seeing some of that, right? We are over the past year we've seen rent growth, you know, come in sharply, right? One reason why I believe overall inflation is going to come in uh, this year is that that shelter component of both CPI or PCE inflation is going to uh, continue to to fall and, and feed in. In order to continue down that path, we need to continue the, the supply of uh, multifamily apartments. Uh, we have about a million units under construction today. So I do expect to see that that's going to continue to put some downward pressure on rents uh, over the next couple of years here as more of that supply comes online. Um, but we need to keep that engine going, right? So that means uh, making sure that we have adequate uh, number of construction workers, building supply uh, costs don't uh, don't uh, increase, that there's adequate financing uh, for these uh, apartment builders. In order to keep those rents from climbing up again or, or accelerating in the future, the key is to continue to uh, increase the supply. And that goes back to some of the zoning questions as well. Yeah, it comes back to the zoning and then also the, you know, there's some, some areas with rent control uh, policies in place that certainly don't, you know, don't make builders... Uh, <laughs> excited about building in markets like that. But um, but yeah, certainly the the supply will be significant over the next couple of years. But uh, part part of where the, the Fed's policy has really been felt is in uh, the multifamily sector, uh, those high financing costs and, and carrying costs once you come to completion uh, certainly impacts multifamily uh, income flows, uh, net income flows. Uh, and so that's, we've seen a pretty big uh, downturn in permitting activity. So we, you know, after the next, after those million units are delivered, then uh, the continued supply of multifamily is likely to taper off rather rapidly. Um, so, you know, based on the trend in permitting, uh, that, that should happen in over the next, you know, year and a half, two years down the road, we should see a pullback. Uh, and all those units coming online, obviously, uh, gets through it. But uh, but certainly, yeah, that that that's going to be a concern that we get a little bit of a bullwhip effect there. We go from all of the supply coming, record supply in many decades, uh, to to dialing it back too much, and then we end up having strong rent growth again that makes it unaffordable again for for renters. So, uh, Parker, there's been continuing debate uh, in our industry about the role of large institutional investors and their purchase of of homes. Do you, do you think institutional investors in single family rental? are helping or hurting housing affordability? Uh, I, I don't think it's, I mean, in certain markets, it certainly has an outsized impact. And uh, but, but at the end of the day, those large institutional investors can also probably operate uh, their rental properties a little bit more efficiently than mom, mom and pops can. Uh, so, you know, they can have staffs of maintenance crews that they, they don't have to hire, uh, you know, a, a random plumber to, to come by and, and fix the pipes. So, um, I think the they have economies of scale there that could make the overall process more efficient and uh, and maybe have better uh, those better price uh, opportunities for for renters uh, from them being involved uh, and also you know having them there creating the demand for those single family rental type units uh, being able to buy like entire communities and you know be an investor in an entire community certainly helps with the supply story uh, so you know. Yes, if it's overly concentrated and everyone swarms into a single market, then it uh, it certainly doesn't help in the short term uh, in in terms of the price activity that that results for for everybody. But uh, over the long run, you know, I, I don't see it as a as a bad thing for uh, for the housing market. I think uh, you know it's just another way to 
to hopefully get more supply to the market and have uh, have have additional uh, you know cash flow coming into the the market that can help support uh, more activity. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. It's a uh, there's a lot of talk about the institutional investor, but uh, but the uh, the fact is that they still command a very small share of the total housing stock. They, you know, so to suggest that they are the ones that are responsible for all this uh, house price appreciation, it seems a little bit of, of a stretch. To your point, that we have to be aware of the concentrations, right? We don't want one company towns uh, to uh, to show up, of, of course. But I think the examples of that are, are pretty few and, and far between. They've also, you know, the fact is, if we do have a, a bit of a softer patch in the economy, if things were to uh, uh, soften in the housing markets, having those investors there can also be beneficial to support house, uh, housing throughout the cycle, right? We don't want the, a severe pullback all of a sudden in construction, for example, because um, house prices are suddenly uh, uh, crashing. So they they do provide a, a a beneficial role as well in terms of keeping a, a constant level of, of demand uh, potentially throughout the cycle, keep making sure that we continue to, to grow uh, the supply rather than having really fits and starts in terms of um, new construction uh, at different points. Yeah, that was interesting. You saw it during the, you know, when when demand really collapsed, when rates first started spiking, you saw some of the institutional investors step in uh, yeah. and, and purchase, like I said, almost entire communities that weren't intended for single family rentals. But hey, you know, you got you got a bulk buyer now in a point where you don't have any demand, uh, or at least don't have the demand that you thought you had. Uh, so so yeah, they were able to step in and, and smooth through some of the the home builder concerns at, at points like that. So whether it's the multifamily or single family side, you know, having having somebody with deep pockets whenever times get tough, uh, it's nice to have participants like that in the market. So, right. All right. A couple more questions here. It's an election year. So let, let's try to have some fun with politics. Um, when, uh, when Bill Clinton won his first election for the White House, uh, his campaign was driven by that famous expression, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, Chris, pretend that you are an advisor to a Republican presidential nominee. What, what's the message that you would have him or her telling the voters that would increase the GOP's chances of regaining the White House? Oh, wow. Okay. Putting me on the spot here. Uh, I guess... Uh, well, I'm going to ask Parker to take the opposite. Okay. <laughs> and say, well, I guess step... You're advising President Biden. I guess step one is to, uh, you know... Uh, I guess with any economic uh, report, you can pick and choose uh, the data that you look for, for. We've been kind of touting some of the strengths uh, in the economy when it comes to growth and the labor market, right? If I'm going to point out the or emphasize uh, aspects of weakness, it's still the the high, relatively high level of inflation, right? Although we might be trending down, it's not back down uh, to a, um, a target level. Certainly, if you think if you talk to the person on the street. Right, inflation remains a real issue. Right, you know, yeah, the growth rate is maybe moderating, but to many or most households, I would suggest that they are really focusing on the on the levels. Right, and things are more expensive today than they were uh, three, four years ago. Right, so clearly that be that would be part of the messaging. Uh, perhaps on a more forward-looking basis, if we're thinking about housing in particular, I might emphasize perhaps a, a platform that would encourage. Uh, uh, an easier uh, regulatory burden uh, for home builders, ways to increase supply through you know, zoning reform, other uh, other programs to encourage more capital 
uh, into the uh, home building market to encourage that greater supply to address some of these real concerns in terms of both home prices and rent prices uh, being high relative relative to incomes. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what should the Biden economic message be for his uh, re-election campaign? Hey, they, they solved inflation. Uh, real incomes are returning. Uh, the outlook looks good. Uh, I mean, what, what what's there not to like right now? Sure, things are uh, pricier than they used to be, but uh, the outlook is bright and, uh, you know, we, mission accomplished at this point. Well, this has been a great way to kick off 2024's podcast series. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time today and uh, look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Awesome. Thank so, you so much. I appreciate it.